I'm Eric Bricker, and I've been a psychotherapist for over 25 years. One thing I can tell you for certain is that no one makes it through life unscathed. At some point, many of us will rely on the trusted counsel of another person to help us navigate difficult times, or to reconcile the troubled past. Whether conventional or unconventional, professional or informal, there are a lot of different forms that helping relationships can take. This podcast is an exploration into what makes these relationships work. Who are the people that help us? How do they help us? And what do people need help with? My hope is to uncover as much as I can about this very human phenomenon, and I hope that you'll join me. This is the Good Counsel Podcast. I'm Eric Bricker, and this is the Good Counsel Podcast. I am joined this morning by my friend and colleague, the great and powerful Trisha Youngs. Trisha is a psychotherapist, a facilitator of workshops, a public speaker, and a soon-to-be-published author. She is an expert in the field of treating trauma, in addition to helping individuals who have been involved in narcissistic relationships to recover from the conditions that creates. So I'm really excited to have Trisha here joining me. Trisha, welcome. It is great to be here. Um, thank you so much. And great and powerful. I don't know about that. I'm just me. Joe Rogan uh, famously introduces people with okay. that. And it's one of my kind of favorite openings. Yeah obviously from uh, The Wizard of Oz. <laughs> so the great and powerful yes, yes, Trisha yes, Youngs. Yes. I like it. I felt like it was there appropriate you for there you. There you go. There you go. So Trisha, I want to ask the question that's on everybody's mind. What does love have to do with it? Yes. What <laughs> does love have to do with it? You title one of your workshops, What Does Love Have to Do With It? Mm -hmm. And I was always kind of curious about the title. So maybe we can kind of start there. Okay, that sounds good. What's Love Got to Do With It is actually the title for my love addiction and love avoidance training. And quite often, somebody who is either on the narcissistic spectrum, or somebody who falls prey to the narcissist, they're acting from a place of really a lot of wounding early childhood wounding, where people grow up, their needs are not met appropriately in childhood. So they grow up and they develop these patterns in their personality styles, in their attachment styles, that causes them to get into this dance, this relationship dance. And um, so that's, you know, one of my trainings is in surviving narcissism. And that's where we talk specifically about what does the narcissist look like? What does it sound like? And how do you actually respond to it if you're in that relationship? If you've been drawn in, because a lot of times you don't even know you're in until it's too late. For anyone who's listening to this, it isn't completely familiar with the term narcissism and what it means. It's probably one of the most overused terms in our lexicon of 2023. It's, it's become like a buzzword. And once pop psychology takes hold of a term, the first thing that will be drained from it is 
its actual meaning. So what a narcissistic personality disorder is, it is a condition of personality. So it's a psychiatric condition, but different from, say, a mood disorder like depression or bipolar disorder. It's more of a condition of personality, this kind of consistent way of interacting and forming relationships with others, which is very pathological and more so destructive to the people that they interact with. Narcissists themselves, very often fine, as long as they're getting what they want. Right. But it's almost kind of like the difference between eating horseradish, you know, and eating garlic. You eat horseradish, too much of it, that's a problem for you. You eat garlic, it's delicious, but it's a problem for everyone else around you. (laughs) Narcissism is kind of the garlic psychiatric condition. And what happens is it creates incredible pathology to the people that live in the orbit of narcissists, particularly if the narcissistic personality disorder person, an individual who is usually devoid of compassion and empathy, very controlling, has created a dynamic in which the victim is dependent upon them. So it might be a narcissistic parent, it might be a narcissistic employer, it might be a narcissistic romantic partner. So I just want to kind of give that background, and then I'm going to turn it back over to you. You did a great job. Oh, thank you. You did a really great job. And people love their narcissism, right? Because why wouldn't you enjoy feeling grandiose, feeling better than everyone? Because that's basically the narcissist. They feel grandiose. They feel entitled. They feel better than anyone. They're the best at the best of the best of the best. That feels really good. That feels like a high. Well, as they say, when you're the greatest, it's not bragging if it's the truth. (laughs) (laughs) You can be the best at something. It doesn't mean that you are the best in the world. You know, there's such a difference. When I talk to people, I talk about the difference between, you know, being the best and striving for excellence. There's a, it's a beautiful thing to strive for excellence. But when you put yourself in that position of being one up better than just because you excel at certain things, all you're doing is you're putting other people in a one down position. You're looking down your nose, shall we say, at other people. And, People who have narcissism, a lot of narcissism, have a tendency to not only feel entitled, but they feel justified in their entitlement. And just yesterday, you know, pulled up to a restaurant in Delray, and this car was parked right in front of the restaurant. And the car was running, and all the cars had to go around it. And I walked by someone. I said, well, they're here. You know, they were so entitled that they had to park in that spot. And when you call somebody on that and say, you know, that is not, you know, that's not relational, they're going to have a rage. That's what happens with a narcissist. If they don't get their supply, it's like a three-step tango. They need their supply, which is admiration or attention. They don't really care if it's positive or negative. They need their attention. They don't get their supply. They're going to feel some injury 
if they don't get the supply or if their humanity is exposed, if they make an error and their humanity is exposed or their challenge, they're going to have an injury. And then mark my words, once a narcissist gets injured, there comes the rage because they don't have the ability to connect with your hum- humanity. Now, if you or I make a mistake and somebody points it out, yeah, we're probably going to feel embarrassed. Like, oh, that didn't feel good. Ah. And we're going to move on. But when you point out an error to a narcissist, you become a threat to them and they are going to launch an attack to extinguish the threat. A lot of times people who are in relationships with narcissists, whether it be personal, romantic, professional relationships, they'll get into this dance and they'll say, I don't even know what I said all of a sudden to bring forth that rage. And it's because everyone around the narcissist, they believe they're there to be of service to them. And so once you're not of service to them, or you question them, or you challenge them, or you express a belief or opinion that is different than theirs, you become a threat. And they have to extinguish that threat like their life depends upon it. What an exhausting way to live, right? It's like a quote by a Greek philosopher who is actually sort of explaining about the necessity for leadership and monarchy. And it was the statement that some people are constructed of bronze, some people are constructed of silver, and some people are constructed of gold. And those people that are constructed of gold, they are meant to be leaders and occupy the superior place in society because of their natural superiority to others. And I always think about narcissism in that in that space because the narcissist truly believes that they're they're gold. The ones that I know are often remarkably adept at creating dependency upon the people around them. So they're really good at being in positions of power in the early states of the relationships that they have with the victims of narcissism. They can often be very charming, very generous. Mm -hmm. They're very adept at knowing what it is that you need and giving it to you. So when you have this person who employs you and tells you that you're wonderful and awesome and they offer you money and opportunities and promise you things, and then six months later, if you don't deliver on their unrealistic expectations, it's like a betrayal. And you could see the same thing in romantic relationships. Absolutely. Where they have that love bombing. Absolutely. Love bombing and anger bombing. Love bombing is when somebody starts to pull away from the individual, the narcissist or the love avoidant, when you start to withhold your admiration or your attention, what they're going to do is they're going to come in with lots of bombs, lots of love bombs, love bombs of doing grandiose deeds, you know, whether it be flowers, vacations, let me do something amazing for your family. Let me do something, let me connect you, get your, let me get your child a special internship. Let me do these things for you. Love bombs are these gifts of service that makes you feel like, oh, they're so special. Look at what an amazing, wonderful person they are. And it's all to draw you back in. The motives are not genuine. The motives are, let me draw this person back in under my domain. 
And if a person doesn't respond to the love bombs, then the anger bombs are going to come. And the anger bombs could be verbal. They could be trying to cut off financial supply. The love bomb, uh, the anger bombs can be physical in nature. They can be weaponizing of time with children, weaponizing of your reputation. So it's really important important for people to be able to see when the bombs are coming and to be able to to really look at what the motives are for an individual. A lot of times when I hear, he's the most amazing man I've ever met. Early on in a relationship, I just kind of like lose my breath a little, go, strap yourself in, strap yourself in, because none of us are amazing. We're all just humans, right? But when a narcissist, what they do is they're going to come in and they're going to oversell themselves. They're going to oversell themselves. They're going to oversell what they have to offer in their lives in order to pull you in. And if you don't, and if you don't respond, if you don't keep applauding to all of their antics, there's going to be hell to pay. There's going to be a lot of hell to pay. So there's a couple of different kinds of narcissists, right? Absolutely. Right. So it's not, it, we're not talking about one person, but the, it's the ones who, who end up uh, elevating to these positions of power where there are all of these people that provide them with supply, mm-hmm. whether it be love partners, uh, romantic partners, employees, uh, family members, or whoever it is that's reliant upon them for something. They usually are like really accomplished and dynamic individuals. And that sort of further complicates everything mm-hmm. because there could be these legitimate generosities that they offer, these legitimate Absolutely. things that they do for others, form a relationship with somebody like this, a romantic relationship. And the love bombing at the beginning could be no one's ever treated me this kindly. Mm-hmm. All of a sudden, you go from being this person's object of all of their affection, their affection. Mm-hmm. to becoming the object of all of their ire mm-hmm. and hostility. It's shocking. And I think that's the beginning of the dance of how do I get back to all the goodies. On the, on the good side. Yeah, how right. do I get back to being the object of your affection? Mm-hmm. And it's interesting because one of the things that I go through, oh, probably 20 times a week with clients is that question. What is it that I did to create this? And if I just act in a different way, if I just do this, if I just say this, if I just do that, then he or she will be happy with me again. I think that's the dance. I think that's the the game. Mm -hmm. Because as the narcissist, especially a malignant narcissist, they draw this line in the sand that represents good enough. And it's kind of like, all right, you've seen what it's like when I'm nice to you and how good that is. And you've seen what it's like when I'm angry with you Mm -hmm. and how bad that can be. So this line represents good enough. How hard are you willing to work to come up to the line? 
And the problem with those relationships is once the line is drawn, you're going to be working very hard to get back up to it. And then what you're going to find is that line can be moved because the, there's no rule there. It's all at the whim of the personality of a person who is very unstable in their interpersonal relationships. So there's no stability. So it's my happiness with you or unhappiness with you is based on what? How much supply I'm getting. And if I'm disappointed right. with my supply, if you've been stingy with me or what I perceive or experience as stingy, and I may not really be uh, clearly articulating these rules to you so you don't know what's good or bad, you just keep trying different things, and I'm not happy, the game is I could just keep moving the line until it becomes unreachable. And I think that's the place where the person who's really malignant in their narcissism sort of seizes control of the other person because this line is constantly out of reach and they end up working very hard and internalizing their inability to reach the line. Yes. And what happens is, is it doesn't start out typically with this malignancy, right? It starts out with all love and roses, right? So it starts out sweet and then things start to change sometimes quickly, sometimes slowly, but in the recipient or the victim, they start to question their reality. And the narcissists love to use one of their greatest weapons, which is gaslighting, and to to really distort somebody's reality. They literally will say, well, that didn't happen. I don't know what you're talking about. Let's talk oh. about gaslighting for a second. Mm -hmm. So the term gaslighting was Webster Online Dictionaries most searched term in 2022. Now, if this is the word that everybody wants to know what it means, we've got some kind of problem in our yeah, society. Exactly. And again, when these words are overused, they lose their definitional nuance. So this is a good time to maybe describe a little bit what, what gaslighting actually means. So gaslighting actually means an intentional distortion of reality for the purposes to manipulate. So what it would typically be reality, the narcissist would say, well, that's not really true. That's not really what happened. And then the recipient is like, well, what do you mean? It's not what really happened. I think I saw that. I think. And it literally, it becomes so confusing to the recipient. It, it's very interesting that the science actually backs this up, that over a period of years that somebody is the recipient of gaslighting, it actually shrinks a person's hippocampus. And the hippocampus is the part of our brain, one of the parts of our brain that is responsible for memory. And so the more the hippocampus gets shrunk, the more the individual's memory gets clouded. So when we think about it, if you are in a building and you start to absorb some gas, what's going to happen? You're going to start to feel lightheaded. You're going to start to feel cloudy. Eventually, you're going you're gonna to collapse, right? Well, a psychological gaslighting is, is very similar. You're going to start to feel lightheaded. You're going to start to feel cloudy. You're going to start to feel dizzy. 
Your anxiety is going to start to skyrocket because your gut is telling you one thing, your mind is telling you something else, but the feedback that you're getting from the person or the system around you is telling you you're crazy, you know, you're going to start to question your reality. And um, so it becomes very destabilizing for a person or a society when you're continually basically sold a a line of goods that does not line up with reality. What's the What's the movie that gaslighting comes from? Gaslighting. Oh, it's actually called. Yeah, gaslighting. it's called gaslighting. Okay, so and it, it was like in the nineteen forties. So in in the movie, there was the the perpetrator of the movie was basically trying to uh, drive this woman to insanity, mm-hmm. and he would lower the flames and the gaslights on the street. And she would come out and she was, why are those lights out? Or why are they lower? Or why, what change? And he would say, what are you talking about? They're the same as they were yesterday. And that's, that's where the term comes from is the movie and his perpetual deception of her subjective reality to where she questioned her own reality, which will drive a person mad. I think it if will. there was a Hallmark card that was specifically designed for people who gaslight, it would be, I'm sorry, but I never said that. <laughs> <laughs> like, at the, if it, at the conclusion of I'm every I'm sorry fight, you thought that. I'm but sorry. I, I'm sorry you thought that, but I never said that. That's not what I said. That's not, that's, that is not what I said. <laughs> that's the way every gaslighting conversation starts. Uh-huh. That is not, that is not what I said. That is not And the I other said. one is, I'm sorry you feel, you feel that, that way. way. Meaning you are incorrect to feel that way. Or what are you talking about? That never happened. Right. So if there was a Hallmark card specifically Mm -hmm. for narcissists to gaslight victims, it would be, I'm sorry you feel that way. That never happened. I never said that. (laughs) Yeah. I I think you need to get some help. I think you need to get some help. (laughs) I think you need to get some help. Uh Uh-huh. And, you know, in... In terms of getting some help, quite often people will come in for couples counseling and one of the people in the partnership will be incredibly dis- emotionally dysregulated, overwhelmed, dysregulated. You know, they look really, really wobbly. And the other person will be like, you know, I love her. I love him so much and I try so hard. And, you know, and they'll give you the eye roll, like, see, this is what I'm dealing with. My partner's really not well, right? And it would be easy um, and natural for someone to think, yeah, this person's, look at her, or look at him. It's typically a woman, but look at her. She really is unstable. She's a lot. And um, one of my um, colleagues and I, who we deal in this arena a lot. We say, we would love to have the tape of what that person looked like five years ago, 10 years ago, before being exposed to all of this psychological abuse. And that is one of the things that happens so often. One of the most frequent statements that I hear of victims of narcissism is, I don't know how this happened to me. I am not who I used to be. I used to be so strong. I used to be so accomplished. 
my former self would never have allowed this to happen. People who get into this kind of a cycle typically have had situations in their life where they were emotionally abandoned or emotionally neglected. So it doesn't necessarily mean that they had a narcissistic parent. A lot of them have had narcissistic parents, but some of them, they just have this incredible attachment wound of neglect for a lot of reasons, whether it be the narcissism or through other reasons, you know, substance substance abuse, uh, mental mental health issues, that kind of stuff. So it's really, I think, the abandonment wound that drives it. A lot of the people that I work with are highly successful individuals professionally, and yet um, they have this high success professionally, yet because of that early abandonment wound, they get drawn into the narcissism, the web of the narcissism. You often meet these people who've had the abandonment, who've been in, had narcissistic parent, whatever mm-hmm. it is, and they're so driven and determined. And it's almost like this compensatory mechanism of if I work hard enough, if I accomplish enough, if I achieve enough, at some point I will accomplish the good enough. And will be worthy of being loved by. Yeah, I'll be. I'll have value. I'll have value. I will be worthy of being loved by someone. Exactly, and you know, there's a lot of good. That's like turning. That's like a post-traumatic gift, right? You know, coming from early relationships where your needs weren't met, and then overcompensating and creating this great drive to succeed. That's a beautiful thing, right? The problem is, is when it starts to rob you of your interpersonal relationships. That is the thing. And I think ultimately the striving toward the line of good enough, that is this really movable object. You could spend your rest of your life chasing after it and never really attaining it. Rudolf Dreikers, the author of The Courage to Be Imperfect, and he's not talking at all about interpersonal relationships or uh, narcissism or anything like that. He's just talking about people's own sense of good enough and fears of failure and all that. He talks about this ladder and these rungs, and at the beginning of the day, we try to get another rung. And it's like, if I can get a compliment, like if I'm a therapist, say, and I, I get a compliment from a client, I climb up a rung. If I get a compliment from a colleague, I climb up a rung. If someone compliments my my social media post, I climb up a rung, because I, I feel like I'm moving towards something. But then the first time a client chooses to work with another therapist instead of me, or something doesn't go as planned, then I fall all the way back to the bottom of the ladder and I'm starting all over again from the bottom. And you live your whole life chasing these rungs that are good enough. I have always made that, in my mind, it's almost akin to what people who have had that narcissistic sequelae and have been in those relationships, what they experience. They're always chasing these good enoughs. And it's when you stop the external validation from other people, and you find a way to get self-acceptance, you're on your way to some kind of healing. And I think people like that will choose, well, this is this is your thing, but, you know, people will then choose different types of relationships. Yes, because that, when you grow up in a system that has not 
spoken into you the fact that you are enough, you have enough, and you do enough, right? That you have value just by being who you are. That You don't have to accomplish anything to receive praise. You just, you know, you're valued, you're nurtured, there is appropriate limit setting. You know, you're going to grow up and you're going to have a healthy ego strength, right? So you're not going to have to attach your value to all of these external markers. You're not going to have to rate yourself by saying, oh, yes, I had all these likes, you know, on my post, or I I live in the right neighborhood. I, I'm, I, I have the right job. I have, these are all the external things that tell us if we're okay. The problem with that is the externals change. You know, we are living in a world where the rules change all the time, right? We're living like, okay, now Facebook is the place you go. Oh, no, wait a minute. Now you got to go to Instagram. No, Instagram. Oh, wait a minute. There's Twitter. Oh, no, it's not Twitter anymore. It's X. Like, where am I? Where's my value coming from? You know, is it coming from these external places or is it coming from within? And you really nailed it because when we outsource our value to anyone else or anything else, we're never going to be enough. I think that's where capitalism and manufacturing and the health and beauty industries absolutely have really sort of captured that aspect of humanity because they're always presenting us with a new and unreachable standard. Absolutely. Or a potentially reachable standard if you're willing to pay for mm-hmm. surgery, the hair replacements, right, right. you know, take the hormones, take exactly. the drug. It's amazing. I mean, the best selling medication in this country right now is semaglutide, which is an off-label use of a medication that's used to treat diabetes because it creates almost instantaneous Mm -hmm. weight loss. And despite the fact that no one, there's no real way to know the potential health ramifications of taking it because it hasn't been around long enough. No longitudinal study. But people throw the risk right out the window because the attaining of that good enough and what will make me desirable or loved by others it's worth the risk. I'll do it because I can get because, love. Because I think I can get love. I think that will up my value. I think that's going to do it. No, they guarantee yeah. it. <laughs> <laughs> they do. They, they, they guarantee. Yeah, that's it. You're going to lose 50 pounds. And, and everyone's yeah, everyone's going to love you. And you lose that 50 pounds and, you, and you're thin. You become thin and you've lost your wall of fat, your wall of armor. And then you know what happens? You have to deal with all of the emotions that you were suppressing, right? Literally, I had a client who lost, she had a gastric bypass. This was way before the Ozempic and all that was on the market. She lost about 90 pounds. And she went from a very fully functioning executive person to literally sitting in the corner um, in the fetal position. Because all of her early trauma came up and choked her. She didn't, uh, literally, we had to work with her for a year to get her to learn how to be social again. Because she dropped into, like, a two-year-old baby. But she was hot. She looked hot, man. She looked hot. And, you know, I when, when you say that, I reflect back on... Uh, a friend of mine 
Ed. I don't know where Ed is now, but like 30 years ago, about 30 years ago, he would say to me, he goes, Trish, you were a, man, you were a hot looking bulimic. You just looked really hot, you know, because I was exercising like two, two and a half hours a day, seven days a week. I looked amazing. But my my um, main relationship was with Stairmaster, right? So I looked amazing and I was showing the world like how amazing I am, but I didn't have time or the social skills to carry on a relationship. So, and there's, there's so much to be said about let's just learn how to just accept who we are. And yes, we always want to try to strive to be improved and be our best selves. But throwing all these chemicals in your body to alter your DNA so you look a little better, um, that really frightens me. I think the people who are the most successful consistently with fitness are the people who are doing it from a place of self-love of doing it from a place of I love myself and I love the way this feels and I exercise and I do this because I want to be my best functioning and feel good about myself. I'm always in a better place when I'm exercising regularly, Mm -hmm. being mindful of what I eat, not abusing the sugars, you know, because I feel better and I'm more energetic and work seems to flow better and the relationships flow better and I'm in a better mood. That's the reason to do it. Chasing after the externalities, chasing after, I guess, this this unattainable line, these because once you're addicted to the external validation, there's never going to be enough that's going to make you feel like you're good enough. And it's like you said, the target's always moving. What's important is always kind of movable. So if you have a big house, well, somebody else has a bigger house. If you have a bigger house, well, how come you don't have two houses? If you have two houses, how come neither of them are on the beach? Right. You can create these unattainable targets and continue chasing and chasing and chasing in this maddening game. Yeah, and when you get into the realm of plastic surgery, um, that is, now here we're in South Florida, so obviously that's a big booming industry here. But when you get into the realm of Botox and fillers and and everything that is available on every street corner now, what I look at is I see these women who are in their 30s who are getting all of these lip injections and these the Botox and the fillers and everything. I'm thinking, my God, woman, you're at the prime of your life. <laughs> you know, this is as good as it's going to get, like in your 30s, right? You're in optimal shape. And somewhere in there, you bought a line that you're inadequate, that how you look, how God created you is inadequate, that you need to blow your lips up. You need to get rid of every little line that there is in order for you to be acceptable to yourself and to others. My heart actually hurts. Well, it's the idea perfection is attainable. And so coming back to the original narcissism Mm -hmm. piece, am I chasing after somebody else's approval 
in a narcissistic relationship because you get a lot of that. Be like, you know what? You look great, but you could probably lose 10 pounds. And who would say that to somebody that they were really compassionate and caring of and loved? And who would say that? But people do. And that's the beginning of that. Now I have to chase his or her good enough. Almost there, just 10 pounds, the Botox, get the lip fillers. I'm going to be what I'm going to be what they like. And then what they like is going to (laughs) change. Right? What they like is going to change. And we go through this a lot. We go through this. I'm sure you hear it a lot. But, you know, people will get married and then they'll have a woman will have a baby. And the guy will be like, yeah, but you don't have the body that you had. I'm like, yeah, she she birthed your child. It's like, yeah, but I was really attracted to her before. And so then the woman thinks, whoa, I'm going to lose my husband because I'm not the person that I was when we came into this relationship. When somebody starts to say that in session, I'm thinking, yeah, we've got some narcissism going on over there. Because if you can't have some compassion for this woman that just birthed three of your children, who whose body went through all of those changes, you know, that's a concern about where's the empathy? Where's, where's the dealing with the reality of things? That it's sort of necessary for people's hips to widen and things like that in order to deliver yeah, a baby. Yeah, it's, it's, it's kind of a process. <laughs> kind of how it works and <laughs> you end up maybe not looking exactly right, the same. Right. And and really nobody gets to choose the metabolism they're born with. You don't get to choose. Unless you take Yeah. <laughs> you can choose. You can choose to speed it up. And you can choose to speed it way up. You could. Yeah. Okay, that comes with side <laughs> Exactly. Effects. One of my favorite one of my favorite statements and almost all my clients will tell you this is that at what cost? You can do anything in the world you want to, but at what cost? You can choose to stay in a relationship that is filled with love bombs and, you know, anger bombs. Absolutely. At what cost? You can choose to, you know, try to keep up with the latest trend. Absolutely. At what cost? People might make the choice that, yes, the cost of staying is worth it. That's none of my business. Well, I think the other piece of it is the low self-esteem component of this is the best I could ever do, and I'll never be able to do this well again. And and the narcissists are really good at instilling that fear into their partners. Mm-hmm. Look, kid, how do you think someone like you is ever going to end up with someone like me? Mm-hmm. Right. You're out of your mind. This is as good as it's going to get. And you'll end up with absolutely nothing. You were nothing when I found you. You'll be nothing again. I think, too, that there is a gender bias in the whole narcissistic schema because we generally see it more in the men. But I see often the inverse of it where it's the female narcissistic partner, the man victim who's being tormented by all this. And it works Almost exactly. Absolutely. The same. It's really, it's percentages skew higher um, 
to males being narcissists. But I will say, women, we're doing our job of keeping uh, of catching up. See, I wonder about that too, because historically there's always been, especially with personality disorders, I think historically there's always been gender bias there. And I think there's always been a gender bias, like with borderline personality disorder, being that women are more likely to be diagnosed with it when you have a man demonstrating the same behaviors or traits, less likely to get the diagnosis. And men were always more likely to get the antisocial mm-hmm. personality disorder when there were women who maybe are demonstrating the same traits. I think we just kind of skew and see it differently because it's interpersonal, right? And it's so subjective. So there's so much societal norm that threads into our perspective. So you think about narcissistic personality disorder and this kind of gender bias society that we live in where men have, you know, male privilege and all this kind of stuff has existed forever. And you think about narcissism, I'm going right to the Harvey Weinsteins of the world, right? But there are women there too. It just, it maybe will look a little bit different. Yes. But it's the same and the damage done to the victims of those relationships are the same, specifically when it's a narcissistic mom and what goes on with the kids. Absolutely. The narcissistic mom knows the child of the narcissistic mother has been brought into the world to serve the needs of the mother. Child's going to make that has to make the mother look good, feel good, and elevate her status. And so when the child of the narcissistic mother makes a mistake or acts as a human, the mom is going to be like, how dare you not reflect well on this family? How dare you? Our image is so important. Howard Stern, who is possibly the most neurotic person on the planet, certainly in the top 10 public figures, because he's so open about it, he always talks about his childhood, and he goofs on his parents endlessly, and it's actually super entertaining. But he always has this thing about his mom and what his mom used to say to him as a child you're my representative out there, you know? And I always think about that with the narcissistic Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. parents where it's, you're an extension of me and your job. Right. You don't, you don't matter. You don't matter in this equation. Yeah. Worry about you in 20 years. Right now, your job Mm -hmm. is to make sure you don't embarrass us out there. Your job is not to grow as a human. It is just to protect the brand, the image, our family. And when, you know, and that's the difference between the malignant narcissist, right? Where it's so easy to see like, oh, that's narcissism. That's pretty egregious. That's like awful. You know, you, you get that vile response to more of that covert narcissist. You know, it's all a little underground where the malignant is just bit blatant. Harvey Weinstein, Roger Ailes. Yeah, I could name many, but I don't want to get sued. I'm going with people who are dead. Uh, oh, okay, good. Good, good, good. But the communal, it's all covert. It's uh, not the communal, sorry, that's another one. The, the covert, it's like underground. It's dropping those bombs, but it's all about, you know, it's, it's all about, it's how does it reflect on me? You're a reflection of 
me. You know, no, the child's a reflection of themselves. The child is a reflection of themselves. If they don't learn that, they go out into the world, they have no self-concept, and they are only as valuable as other people think they are. Yes, I'm just somebody's daughter or I'm somebody's son. And who am I really? You know, I deal with a lot of people in their 60s who are now like trying to figure out who am I? Who am I now that I'm trying to transition to the next phase of my life when my self-worth has always been in my career or the fame I brought to my family? You know, so who am I? And that is a really painful place to be when you feel hollow. Because really, that's what it is. If you feel like you're not enough, you feel this empty hollowness inside of yourself. Let me ask you a question, because this comes up a lot, and certainly there's a lot of debate about this. I have some thoughts on it. Do you believe that narcissism itself is treatable in psychotherapy? Absolutely. I mean, I work with a lot of narcissists. I think that if you're going to treat it successfully, there's a couple of things that you have to be able to do. You have to be able to, number one, start to teach people, to teach a narcissist about empathy. You know, start, start to hold up a mirror and be able to show them the parts of themselves that they cannot see. And it's a long, direct and indirect process. You know, it's a long, indirect and direct process, you know, holding people accountable, showing them, holding the mirror up. But you really, ultimately, what you need to do and when you're treating narcissism, you got to get down to the early stuff. You got to get down to that early broken little girl or broken little boy whose own emotional needs didn't get met. You know, maybe they were overly praised. You know, may, maybe they were, maybe they were falsely entitled by their accomplishments early on. You think we got a big problem with that, with the Gen Z celebration of mediocrity? Oh, yeah. It's it's out of control. Out of control. Does everyone need a trophy? And and, and if everybody has a trophy, what's the meaning of the trophy? Right? What's yeah, the exactly. what's the what's the meaning of it? I'm a big fan of Keith Campbell, a narcissism expert, and one of the things that he says first is the vast majority of narcissistic clients that are coming to therapy, it's usually at the urging of someone else. It's usually at the urging of a spouse or a board of directors or something like this. That's often what's happening there. And he utilizes this very simple and workable system that he calls CPR, compassion, passion, and responsibility. So the compassion is what you talked about, like the empathy piece, where you're kind of breaking down interactions and you're saying, hey, were you being compassionate? Were you observing of the suffering of the other individual in that interaction? Do you think when you were yelling at them in a restaurant that it felt good? Or, you know, are, are we aware of that? And how might we do that differently? And then the passion part, which is you don't have to be like the best at everything. Let's focus on not on you being great. I don't know, golf or tennis or whatever the thing is, but let's focus on how much you like it and how much fun it is. Let's talk about it that way so that other people can enter into the conversation and it's not a constant competition. 
where we're talking about who's the greatest and the whole responsibility thing, which is if you do harm because of being self-absorbed in a moment and you want to have friends, you want to have relationships, let's focus a lot on being responsible. Let's focus on taking ownership of things, being apologetic when we need to, you know, all that. So it's like this very simple kind of teachable system that I, that I like. And the guy has like a, a lot of uh, YouTube videos. He's uh-huh. written a few books. Keith Campbell, yeah. great Joe Rogan interview that he did uh-huh. on the subject. So I'm putting that out yes, there for absolutely. everybody. And, you know, it, there's so much to be... Accountability goes so far. Account, most humans are very forgiving people, right? If they just want to be validated and be told... And to be here, like, yeah, it was wrong when I did that. True to what you said, I think for a lot of people who have been victimized by the narcissistic behavior of others, the one thing almost like inescapable and kind of torturous for years and years after an injury occurs is that to this day, my mom, my dad, my former employer, my whoever, my former romantic partner never acknowledged how harmful it was when they cheated on me or exactly. how harmful it was when they fired me without cause. And mm-hmm. no one ever acknowledged or apologized. And that's what I am holding on to because at the end of the day, it's the lack of recognition that causes me to internalize this idea that I am disposable. Right. Which actually ties back to the original abandonment wound. Right. So if you if you have this original abandonment wound, you're going to continually to feel that unrest of being unseen and unheard and invalidated. So for people who have that suffering, that suffering of really needing to be validated, because that is a suffering state. It's a suffering state of being, right? And it holds us hostage. When we go back and we do the work on the original abandonment wounding, it becomes easier for them to move through that and let go of that yearning and that longing and that need to be validated that they were wrong to do this to me. You know, whoever the whoever the me is, because life is a series of injuries, right? Just navigating all of these different life experiences. My wounding bumps into your wounding, your wounding bumps into her wounding and his wounding. You know, so we're all just these wounded humans trying to navigate this life. Pretending to be adults. (laughs) Right, exactly. Pretending like we actually have a handle on all of this. <laughs> right. I mean, I think the place, and you and I have both worked in these environments, I think the place where you see it the worst, uh, shout out to the addiction treatment industry, but this is where you see large groups of adults, and I'm talking about the staff, acting out all of their unaddressed family of origin wounds. Uh, it's just like a absolutely. Petri dish of it. Absolutely. So I came from corporate America before I was a therapist. And so it was a shock to me when I arrived on the scene about how dysfunctional the systems were in the healthcare industry. And then I went to some training and I remember the 
the trainer said that there are more people with complex trauma working in the mental health and substance abuse field than any other industry in the world. I said, oh, well, (laughs) that makes sense. When I was early in my career, one of my first jobs in my career, I worked in a psych hospital and I was in my office one day and I was just, I just broke down in tears. And a case manager came in and she saw me. She's like, what's wrong? I'm like, no, no, I'm okay. I'm okay. And the next day I was brought up to the director's office and she said, I heard you were crying in your office yesterday. What happened? What's going on? And I leaned over and I said, they're really sick back there, you know, back on the unit. And she said, you're not talking about the clients, are you? And I said, no, they're acting like clients. They're acting like patients. You know, I said, the staff, they're brutal. They're brutal. And she said, yeah. She goes, it's not going to change. And I was like, I I was so shocked and horrified because here I came from a corporate setting where things got dealt with. You either deal with it or you're out of here. But there it was like, it was just a Petri dish for dysfunction. I remember someone telling me at a job that I had earlier in my career working in a treatment center, I've worked in a few, where they said, you're probably going to do all right in this because one of the things that you bring to the table is that you're like pretty regular. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I'm just sort of not prone to interpersonal conflicts at work. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And they thought that that was unusual for the environment. And I said, <laughs> I thought that's kind of what you're supposed to be, like not having big drama with different people and you do what your boss asks you to do and nice to people. I didn't realize that that was anything special <laughs> or extra. I didn't realize that was an asset. Uh-huh, uh-huh. I just thought it was what you're sort of expected to do. There you go. It, well, it, it really is, unless you're working in... Around a lot of people who just have difficulty with all that. <laughs> right, right. Who have... Who came into their lives of addiction because of their unresolved trauma as a mechan- as an adaptation to deal with their unresolved trauma? Right. That's why I am a huge, huge, huge proponent. Did I say huge? Proponent of anyone who works in the mental health or substance abuse field doing their emotional work on their early life experiences so it doesn't play out in the workplace. I think that there are two types of therapists at the end of the day, the ones that have done their own work and the ones that haven't. Mm -hmm. And if you're one of the ones that haven't, it's going to be one of two things. You're either just not going to really be any good Mm -hmm. or you're going to create pathology. You're go- there's going to be a level of inappropriateness, mm-hmm. boundary problems, whatever the thing is, there's going to be some suffering. And it may reflect ultimately in the type of patient care you Absolutely. deliver. Specifically, if you deal with complex populations. Right. And we owe it to our clients to show up as healthy individuals. We we owe it to them. I don't know why in our field it is not mandated for therapists to go through some pretty intensive therapy before they get to um practice therapy. I don't know why I don't I that's a question that I just don't know. I've seen a trend in the last 
five, 10 years of people, the second they get licensed, they go out into private practice. Well, I admire the ambition and self-confidence that it takes to do all that. I admire it because I'm a person who waited way long to go out on my own. But I often question, like if I hadn't had the types of experiences that I had, even being a clinical director and a program administrator and working with diverse populations and seeing all different kinds of experiences and having my own maturity and growth and taking time to do my own work, I don't know that I was a person that could have been a really effective private practitioner two years out of graduate school. I don't know that it would look the way it looks now. Right. I think I think my concern with that is that it takes so much time in mentorship in order to be seasoned enough to deal with the variety of presentations that show up in your office. 100%. You know, some of my earlier, when I think about some of the doctors that I had the opportunity to work with in many of these different settings and the things that they taught me, just those side conversations that you'd say, hey, doc, can I talk to you about such and such? And they would sit and they would educate you. And some of the colleagues, the therapists that we have had the ability to learn from along the way about like, like we don't prescribe medications, but we learned a lot about them from being in those settings, talking to the nursing staffs, talking to the, the medical staffs, talking to that multidisciplinary team, where when you're in your office, you don't have that team. Even if you have some colleagues that you chat with every once in a while, you're not immersed in that. And so there's such value in that, you know, like I don't typically deal with the severe mental illness currently in my practice now, but I definitely walk through those waters in many areas through working at different psych hospitals, working in community case management, you know, community mental health, doing all of that, working in the trenches. So a lot of times I'll draw upon that or someone or shows up in my office referring to the behaviors. Oh, okay. We might need to look at that. And if you just came in off going to school and then just setting up as an intern in a private practice, I think that you rob yourself of that depth and that which ultimately robs the client. Like Nietzsche said, when we look into the abyss, the abyss also looks into us. And if I'm not clear or centered or emotionally well-balanced enough to hold the space, the person who's looking for stability and answers to very complicated questions, it's going to create something where they're not going to be able to get their needs met. And I'm actually in the position to do harm, especially the trauma population. They defer to their mm -hmm. very well-ingrained and well-entrenched defensive strategies for managing relationships. So while I think I might be having some influence on the individual that I'm attempting to treat. It's actually them that, and they're managing me while they manage my instability or lack of balance or lack of experience. Mm -hmm. And that gets into a really dangerous place where if I'm treating someone who's like a perennial people pleaser, well, then they know the way to manage this interaction is just to make me feel like everything we do is wonderful. 
you're the greatest. You're the greatest. You're the best. You're, you're the most wonderful. Things going at home and all that. Well, it's yeah. still terrible. <laughs> still pretty horrible, but, but, actually. But I, but I but really cool. like you. It's not your fault. It's not your fault. So I had um, an interaction in my life personally way before I was a therapist, like maybe 20 years before I was a therapist, where I was working with a therapist um, who I am confident she was well-meaning. She was well-meaning. She had good intentions. And um, she was way outside of her box of experience. She had no business walking in the waters that she was walking in with me. And, you know, part of my journey is I'm a survivor of sexual abuse. And she thought it would be a great idea for me to confront my perpetrator. It's a good idea. Go confront your perpetrator. Put me on a plane, sent me 1,500 miles away to go confront the perpetrator. You probably know how that went. <laughs> yeah, I had to imagine that just didn't go well. I think oftentimes an inexperienced therapist is looking at this like there's a Hollywood ending that's available to us <laughs> where there's some big moment that's going to be available to you where you're going to confront the perpetrator. It's all going to come into alignment. He's going to, he's going to admit it, and then I'll get, that, I'll get that validation, and I can be healed. And then we're going to roll the credits. Problem is, the movie just continues. The movie just continues. And unfortunately, the, the episodes that get added were very unnecessary. Very unnecessary. No, it didn't go well. It could be my PhD in gaslighting. That's a whole other conversation. But no, the whole thing was turned on me. I tried to make me look like I was very unstable, very crazy. We need to get you help, all of it. And, you know, her intention was well-meaning. And it was egregious. A lot of people think of therapy as the place where this expert is going to help me make the big decisions in my life. And maybe they'll even kind of t give me the yes or the no. And I always say, I'm never going to be the guy to tell you what to do. I'm never going to be the one to tell you to divorce the spouse. I'm never going to be the one to tell you to leave mm -hmm. the job. I'm never going to be the one to tell you to set this permanent boundary with your family where you're not talking to them anymore. And here's why. Complicated human dynamics where decisions have to be made we're often choosing between the lesser of two terrible situations <laughs> and trying to decide which one is less harmful. Right. And big decisions often have with them consequences. And I'm not going to be the one to live your consequences. You are. Right. So ultimately, the yes, the no, the do it, the don't do it, the leave, don't leave, you got to figure that out. Because ultimately, you're the one who's going to live with whatever that is. Absolutely. I say this all the time. I've been a therapist over 25 years. Never once in my life have I ever told anybody to get a divorce. It's not my job. My job is to help you figure out what you need to do for you. You know, um, it, I've never told anybody to leave a job, to do anything. It's not my job to tell people what to do. Now, I did have one person years, 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 years ago that 
I was thinking, this is, she has got to go. <laughs> this is not going to end up well. She has got to go. That was my personal belief. I never shared that. And um, fortunately, she didn't go. She didn't do it my way. I didn't never told her what my way would be. I just helped her look. And she's like, God has not told me to go. God has not told me to go. And she goes, so I have to stay. I said, okay, well, you know, we'll help you do what you got to do to stay. She ended up coming down with a very aggressive form of cancer. And her narcissist um, literally was there to help her through the last six months of her life. Had she gone, like me and my ultimate wisdom wanted her to go, right? She would have been alone in a townhouse by herself, going through um, chemotherapy and the end of life. See, it's not our plan. It's it's not it's not it's never my agenda, and it's never my plan. It's got to be their agenda and their plan. Yeah, it's because the future is often very unpredictable. Right. <laughs> yeah, and for me, it the only time you'll ever hear me be that direct is, hey, man, like this situation you're in seems life-threatening to me. Right. And you should probably be somewhere else. Yeah, exactly. And you could be somewhere else across town. I'm not telling you you have to get divorced, but I'm telling you, you need to be in a separate setting. That's as far as it goes. But I think people need to arrive at their own conclusions. And you know, I think we need to respect them enough to say, I believe in you. I believe in your capacity to make choices. I believe in your right to self-determination. Right. We are not more powerful by any means than our clients. And you have to be there because if not, then the relationship we have with the client is in service of us and it's not in service of the, the client. Absolutely. Well, Tricia, we've said it all. We've done it all. You know what? Actually, we didn't. We probably could have gone off for like another hour. <laughs> but um, thank you so much for coming and joining me. Uh, this was really great. I think we did some interesting stuff here. I think it's pretty cool. I'm really looking forward to going back and listening to this. Tell me, is there anything you want to put out there? Anything you want um, to sort of plug, you have speaking engagements mm -hmm. coming up. I know you're always into something. Yeah, I'm, al I'm always, I'm always into something. That's for sure. Um, so the path to healing is a three day, um, trauma intensive workshop where we do a lot of developmental, early developmental work and they're really cool. Um, they're, limited to four clients with two facilitators. So we get in and we get down and we get, we, we really clean up a lot of the early family of origin work. And then I've started a second line of my business called Instill Hope. And, um, which actually I started it because one day I was walking and I said, God, what do you want from me? Not like, what do you want from me? But just like, what do you want from me now, God? And I heard the words instill hope. And so I was like, okay. And so I started um, a line in my business where to do virtual seminars, virtual trainings, um, do a lot of virtual work for people to be able to reach a larger, um, a larger mass of people where we do coaching, um, and skills building and hope building and do a lot. We're doing a lot of webinars, 
um, to give a lot of this knowledge to a broader audience. So um, we do, we, we're doing a lot and I, and I speak and train and show up wherever I'm needed. Last we spoke, you were working on a book. As a matter of fact, I just I have just become re-inspired to hopefully, I shouldn't say hopefully, but I would like to be able to have it completed by May of this year. Awesome. Do we have a title? Yes. And I was told by someone very wise that I need to stop telling people the title. Gotcha. Don't share the title. title. Is so good. Somebody's going to steal it. And like they've stolen a bunch of my other stuff. People stole your stuff? Um, people like to acquire stuff. Yeah. But it's really, it's really, it's really God's stuff. So it comes through me, but I, so I'm not going to, so I'm going to hold off on the title. Okay. Let me ask you this. At this moment right now, do we need to confront anyone out there? (laughs) Do do we want to rat anybody else? Do we want, do we want justice? No, I'm okay with justice. I'm okay with justice. Yeah. I, you know, initially when that happens, I'm like, damn, that is like my stuff. And then I have to remember, I work for God. Hopefully people are getting helped. And and that's what it's all about. That's very generous of you. That's the only way I can have serenity. You know, that literally, that's the only way I can have serenity. So let me ask you this. Do you have anything coming up that you want to let people know about? Oh, actually, we're having a breakfast on January the 11th. January, January 11th. 11th at the Embassy Suites in Boca, a cup of hope. A cup of hope. Yes, and we're going to kick off 2024 with a cup of hope. So if anybody wants to attend a cup of hope um, breakfast, you can connect with me um, on www.instillhopeconsulting.com or just call me 561-886-7985 for a cup of hope. And then we have a three-day intensive the next day, I think it's full, but there's usually room for one more because life happens and one person usually has to drop out. All right. All right. So January 11th, come on out and get yourself an extra large <laughs> cup of hope with Trisha and her team. So um, yeah, thanks a lot, Trisha, f- again, for coming out. This has been great. It's wonderful. It's it, Thank you. It's been Thank you for all that you're doing for the community. I appreciate that. You know, thank you. For, there's, there's a lot of work for us yet to be done. All right. Ladies and gentlemen, this has been Trisha Youngs on the Good Council Podcast. I'm Eric Bricker, and we'll see you soon. <laughs>